Unsee the future. How to encourage the more hopeful human tomorrow. Episode 10. Innovation. Success. Let's brainstorm. You've been delivering solutions for years. You became truly passionate about it. But if you've still not been seen to be championing innovation, then you have really badly spoiled your basic business buzzword bingo ballot card. You are ineligible to network and we all feel embarrassed for you. Don't feel you can redeem yourself with some last-minute authentic storytelling as we escort you off the premises. You're writing checks, your PowerPoint can't cash because we use contactless now and your brain should be in the cloud. This isn't the 1970s. You're pathetic, Steve. But innovation is the thing all business feels sure it must have some of somewhere today. Incubate it, test bed it, have your old lean project team work up a culture. So long as you're still at your desk by half eight, you arty sponger. I'm off to take the clients to an enormous lunch and to try to sell them a soulless expensive car ad for the telly. Gosh, but I miss the 1970s. I'm Timo Peach. So what is it? innovation. And how does it fit into the UN's working plan for a building an actually sustainable human planet future, the global goals? In my personal look at how we might hope to piece together a complete idea of a practically positive tomorrow, I've used the SDGs, as they're sometimes called, as a good outline structure to interrogate the challenge Generation Now is really facing. That's you and me. Whether you're 8 or 80, it's dawning on more and more of us that many of our big problems seem to be converging on us all at once today as the 21st century approaches its third decade. Can we innovate our way out of them in the end? With some last-minute authentic storytelling, perhaps. In this episode of Unsee the Future, I'm actually going to innovate a little efficiency myself by combining two of the goals into one episode. Don't panic. You can cope with a little out-of-the-box thinking. We've come a long way together already, and we've tinkered with the format a little before to keep things fresh. This is the future, after all. Because it strikes me that the goal for industry, innovation and infrastructure is tied rather closely to the goal for responsible consumption and production. I'd say, complex as the aims swept up under these two titles are, that they are flip sides of the same coin. Our industry is our means of production, and our infrastructure delivers what we consume. To me, it's going to take some significant innovation to retcon the technical complications of our world machine, because we've come to depend on that machine like an iron lung. But, instead of attempting to write a Haynes manual of the Land Rover world machine, I think it would be sensible to simply lay out the challenge we're facing as industry planners and consumers alike, and look at a couple of examples of trends in thinking that might show what's possible. And well done for using the word trends. Pop the kettle on, but the biscuit budget is rescinded. No more hanging around the tea urn. Barbara's not interested anyway. Grab your sharpies. Let's innovate. On the one hand, the global goals aim to ensure sustainable consumption and production patterns. Well, that's linked to everything, isn't it? CO2 emissions, health, waste and pollution, all of it. And they chastise us bluntly. 
Our planet has provided us with an abundance of natural resources, but we have not utilised them responsibly and currently consume far beyond what our planet can provide. We must learn how to use and produce in sustainable ways that will reverse the harm that we've inflicted on the planet. Right, but our world machine is very hungry. It has a lot of moving parts, which means their other goal seems to operate rather symptomatically with this first one. It suggests we must see our ongoing production challenges as a need to build resilient infrastructure, promote inclusive and sustainable industrialization, and foster innovation. Open up business as inclusively as possible, including the business of building how we do things, and try to help as many new biz leaders as possible avoid settling straight into the smelly old biz habits. As they expand, a functioning and resilient infrastructure is the foundation of every successful community. To meet future challenges, our industries and infrastructure must be upgraded. For this, we need to promote innovative, sustainable technologies and ensure equal and universal access to information and financial markets. This will bring prosperity, create jobs and make sure that we build stable and prosperous societies across the globe. They seem to recognise there that a less-than-universal access to information and financial markets has driven some unhealthy divisions in the shape of global business and the shape of infrastructure that delivers it. Baking in systemic, less-than-optimal outcomes, you might say, if you'd swallowed your copy of BizSpeak 101. They actively want to encourage industry, it seems, the inclusive and sustainable kind, mind, but they want industry across the world to up its share of employment. The business of making stuff. Too many sponging arty types in white-collar consultancies, not actually making anything, perhaps, just blogging and tending channels, I don't know, but there is the hope to turn a lot of that physical jobs market into work that helps developing nations get much more up to scratch with their internal workings. Building stuff to help the countries work much more effectively and sustainably in one stroke. Keynesian and green, you might say. Greensian. But the UN's hopes tie this big building stuff to research and to technical development, alongside better financial influence for poorer nations and workers and improved IT skills and general diversification of economies. One or two of the richest nations on earth are sweating about this last one. It's about the rollout of smarter tech for administering countries and so engaging their people with more future-facing jobs and outlooks ones that bake in a far more sustainable outlook, whether you're baking, building or blogging. Where to start? The business of business is hard work. No one builds success without graft and focus. In all our narratives of healthier living and better work-life balances, in our whole creeping awakening to our mental health pandemic, we can't forget that it takes preparation, vision, slog, resilience and sheer cojones to make a business work. It takes conscious sacrifice. It's risky. It's energy draining. But you do it because you feel you must. Either because fate has shown you the only way out of that stuck job or because you just can't ignore the tingle in your water that you have to have tried that endeavour, tried to grapple an opportunity. And in the end, it is entrepreneurism that changes the world. The sheer daft commitment to having a go at something new. 
You might argue it is the single most planet-shaping core characteristic of the human. We can't leave ideas alone. By the time we've built those ideas, though, they become entities in themselves. Things outside us. Kinetically learned experiences we can't put back into our brains, and which can begin to control our thinking. I feel sure that the maritime habit of referring to ships with the female pronoun is because a ship takes on a characterful presence of its own when you spend any time around one. She's a fine ship is the admission that the huge bit of steel and riveting rolling around on the briny has become present in a crew member's imagination, wedded to them emotionally a bit. And a massive bit of infrastructure like a ship, well, it can do a lot to look after you, like a protecting mother figure, if you look after her. She can also do a lot to drown you if she sinks, and that won't be her fault, it'll be a senior staff's fault. Industry has challenges on the more massive end of the challenges scale, and it's a genie so out of the bottle of ideas that the landscape of big manufacturing and oil and gas refinery seems as immovable as the mountains of Earth themselves. And of course, it drives the bulk of our climate target problems. So rather than letting the big old tankers of last century's industrial hopes crack apart and sink in socially, economically and chemically toxic disasters of bad leadership, how can we build new vessels of manufacturing hopes that can stay afloat indefinitely so we can carefully scuttle the old buckets? Well, firstly, if you simply want to expand your future portfolio and invest in green industry, Investopedia highlights what it thinks are the top 10 industries to dig into your inheritance for. And you might have been able to write the headlines yourself during a coffee at the airport waiting for your chartered jet to refuel. Wind energy, water purification, solar energy, fuel cell production, efficiency innovation, pollution control tech, waste reduction products, organics and less toxic oil companies. For, they say, there are some relatively speaking. Now, while this last one might sound like trying to weave a green silk purse out of an oil refinery spill, Investopedia makes a realistic point about trying to improve both better practice in existing multinationals and the development of much greener innovation by placing your money very deliberately, saving the world one investment at a time, as they put it. The mirror of that other great movement to give the more toxic industrial markets their marching orders divestment, as Go Fossil Free simply illustrates. Look it up on the blog. Getting rid of your mucky oil and gas shares. Not because they aren't still making a few nice profits today, but because you'd rather see the money go to encourage something more sustainable tomorrow. While renewable energy is an obvious industry to bet on at the moment, some are still a little sceptical about what it will deliver in terms of a real green renaissance of new tech green jobs. The FT's city editor Jonathan Ford is positively scoffing about their ability to add up to much new biz for UK PLC, for example. No one denies that green technologies create employment. Figures from the Renewable Energy Association suggest that 117,000 people are already beavering away in the sector and its supply chain. But job creation alone does not equate to a benefit for the economy, he says. Probably not quite in that voice, but certainly almost as condescendingly. Essentially claiming that jobs have little value in a sector that the British public must first sluice with buckets of subsidies, expected to reach 9 billion a year by 2020. 
Now, he doesn't quite mention where this figure comes from, and he doesn't interestingly mention the nearly 7 billion in subsidies the fossil fuel sector has had from the UK taxpayer this century, as unearthed by Private Eye and reported on on my blog by Unearthed. It's murky reading. Ford also doesn't refer to his own paper's report that worldwide statistical analysis by the International Energy Agency shows there are large transfers from the public purse that encourage the consumption of polluting fuels, with global subsidies for oil and gas totaling $490 billion in 2014 alone, while straight renewables were handed out a mere $112 billion in the same year. He does go on to say that China has stolen the march on the green sector enormously, so kinda what's the point? Yeah, damn that free market economy, as I'm sure the Financial Times would put it. SDG 12.C interestingly implies there are market distortions created by fossil fuel subsidies that encourage wasteful practices, as it puts it. So they aim to rationalise these. Incidentally, I believe the security question to get into the UN's global headquarters on the East River is always randomly generated from the complete current structural breakdown of the global goal. So if you're planning to visit, you'd better learn the whole thing by heart. There will be a test. Subsidising sectors. Well, it's simply something a government is supposed to do in the national interest, helping things that the democratically elected representatives of the people think the people will benefit from when the free market can't be expected, naturally, to adopt. It's called good management of resources, attempting to balance business encouragements with health and security long term. That's the idea. I hear this can be slightly affected by who people's mates are in government, but perish the thought. Many new businesses across the world are simply getting on with exploring the possibilities of whole new ways of doing things around green energy, and many would say there would be all manner of opportunity in a government very publicly throwing its story of national identity behind the idea. Be real world leaders and tool up your workforce and markets for the impending future as you do so. But wholly new business aside, the rub is surely old business. Is there any value-adding place for some sustainable innovation in the markets that make all the big stuff our brave new tomorrow will still be built with, like steel? Wind turbines made out of hemp and flax, are they, mate? Well, green industry doesn't necessarily mean all vegan canteens. Not yet, anyway. As the UN's Industrial Development Organization puts it, green industry means economies striving for a more sustainable pathway of growth by undertaking green public investments and implementing public policy initiatives that encourage environmentally responsible private investments. They suggest protocols to existing industries such as Resource Efficient and Cleaner Production, RECP. Because, they say, taking care of materials, energy, water, waste and emissions makes good business sense. RECP is the way to achieve this. Preventative management strategies that increase the productive use of natural resources, minimise generation of waste and emissions, and foster safe and responsible production. They hope to encourage cleaner production, better water management and chemicals management and they refer to the Stockholm Convention, a global treaty to attempt to deal with persistent organic pollutants. You can guess what they do. Pops are a lot worse than plops. 
All this sort of thing is essentially about shifting management cultures with new strategies of minimising the lazy bad stuff. A combination of tax, subsidies, regulation and green team building away days perhaps. Getting group leaders to repot geraniums quietly and offering them PDR unrecorded hugs from trained comforters when they one by one begin to simply weep uncontrollably. It all aims to help businesses around the world adopt more sustainable inputs, less wasteful throughputs and less hideously death-inducing outputs. As the World Resources Institute sums up, the international community can be effective in creating or supporting a race to the top for eco-efficiency. Rolling out green energy to the bigger industrial processes will be a big part of how we can clean all this up, of course. But you could frame it as the single greatest emissions challenge humankind faces. As the International Energy Association estimates, energy-intensive and non-energy-intensive manufacturing, along with non-manufacturing industry altogether, uses more delivered energy than any other end-use sector, consuming about 54% of the world's total delivered energy. Let's be real. Can we do any industrial heavy lifting on renewable power? We need hefty baseload for this, don't we? But what if this also comes with hefty cost load from the energy supplier? Shane Murphy of Liberty One Steel at a plant in West Sydney told ABC News, Increases in electricity costs have been catastrophic for this particular site. Since 2015, prices have increased by 140%, and in the last six months they've increased by 70%. If we'd attempted to pass this on to our customers, they'd have said, we'll buy somewhere else. As we pondered in episode 9, Australia is in a particular conundrum with power at the moment, but one that illustrates the potential problems on a big scale with centralised energy generation. Everyone using it is vulnerable to its politics, prices and pollution. But we're stuck with it, aren't we? You can't run a steel plant on renewables. You can't run an aluminium smelter on renewables. A battery will not run a steel mill. A battery will not run an aluminium smelter, said former Oz PM Tony Abbott emphatically. Of course a battery can't run a steel mill. It's not supposed to. All it's meant to do is stabilise the grid, says Sanjeev Gupta, boss of Liberty Steel. Having managed to salvage various steel plants in the UK from declining profitability, he's gone on to buy up huge chunks of the industry down under, making Liberty one of the biggest consumers of power in the country. And he appears to be planning seriously to power them all with renewable energy. The big ticket here is solar and pumped hydro combined with a bit of battery. That package is a killer. It's going to bring down the cost of dispatchable baseload energy in Australia dramatically, he says. In the UK, we saved about a third in terms of our power grids, and I think similar is possible in Australia. PV across factory roofs, waste gas emission used to generate power as well, and some waste mines flooded to become hydro power plants, all topped up with bits of wind and a bit of coal to begin with. He's so serious about the business viability of a clean-powered future for industry, he's invested heavily in a power company, Zen Energy, to create net exports into the general Australian grid that will supersede the power Liberty Steel takes out of it overall. Green reliable energy at a much cheaper cost, they promise. We're very happy we can deliver on that, says a smiling Zen boss, Ross Garneau. We're happy for the sceptics to see what we do, and they'll learn 
what's possible. Personally, I think it's just a matter of time, especially given the industrial boom coming from the mining of lithium for batteries. There's still plenty of money in the hills if you're prepared to adapt your business. There just doesn't have to be so much murky air in the valleys as a result of it. Industry, though, isn't just steelmaking and car plants. The challenge of a more sustainable future is business-wide, which means your office, even if you're a freelancer lounging around a media suite with other beardies. Even you have to ask, is my hot desk contributing to global warming? While it might be prudent to first think local on that one and ask the people around you that question after you've had lunch, the impetus to act global at work is creeping into the workplace. And the view from the beige photocopier across the fields of workstations is still an atmosphere coloured thickly by disconnected cultures. Not just Greg's egg, bacon and jalapeno toasties. It's not enough to be authentic. We have to be real, said Mark Masters of You Are The Media. Authenticity is seen by many businesses as the mantra to live by and the stake in the ground for others to see how they behave. In reality, it comes across as a tailored begging bowl for acceptance. While it's true that creative media, marketing and digital businesses tend to be a little more keenly aware of progressive strategy jargon, the thinking tends to eventually flow diluted down the business river to register somewhere in a cultural water sample at the dockside of general working life. From the haute couture wellspring of fancy pants expensive adland trends to the off-the-peg water coolers of our industrial estate marketing. And the trend this century has been to start to sound a little more human, slightly softer. Remembering to smile when you rationalise your optimal forecasting by sacking Gary and purchasing, that sort of thing. Now, I've said before that I think brand and biz attempts to look a little nicer, like greenwashing or human washing, actually not a phrase that will catch on at networking breakfasts, come to think of it, are actually little signs that the wind is changing. I am tempted to stare flintily at the windsock of such things and say quietly, Yep, the storm is a-coming. But that doesn't make it the main weather system of change arriving quite yet. Some endemic things to how we do business have sort of irradiated our minds from our first typing pool job. Advertising has long targeted people, like a drone strike. It at least now talks more about engaging them, though this still could be interpreted as with the enemy, the true theatre of big business. But in the era of giant corporatism trying hard to look more human, it may be that the true transformation of the mega brands, from big businesses adding only dead-eyed financial value to rather fewer people than they like to claim, and making a lot of noise pollution across all the channels of our living as they do so, you know, it may be that we are seeing the beginnings of more actually useful thinking from organisations with big clout. They may even have to allow this to survive. As the Future Laboratories' Olivia Stancombe says to Industry Mag Campaign, agencies must become activists, speaking to consumers' morals and emotions. Consumers are less trusting of traditional media and becoming savvier to the algorithms used to deliver them that perfect piece of content, and the industry must acknowledge this and react. Data can only take you so far in identifying who to connect with. More is needed to strike up a truly meaningful connection, she says. 
In tumultuous times, consumers are looking to brands to take an active role in society, as was shown in a recent Unilever study, which found that a third of consumers are now choosing to buy from brands they believe are doing social or environmental good. Everything starts at home, of course. How you treat your staff may be the real bellwether of who you are as a company. How inclusive is your hiring policy? your office environment, your brand language. Does what you say match up with what you do day to day? And does it resonate with the humans working for you? I've said in my own conversations with different businesses over the years that we're talking about brand body language here. All the things that your business life communicates around your words. And they are always by far the widest bandwidth communication channel, mate. Brands, like besties, are built on behaviours. They'll always show up what your real values are. Does sportswear titan Nike's new Nothing Beats a Londoner ad have something genuine to say about social life now in the UK, in post-B-word Britain? Maybe. It did make me feel a little better about my home country again. A tiny squirt of that comforting old 2012 magic. The long-form cut of the TV ad looks like a newer story of us that tries to employ some recognition. It'll never sit comfortably, though. Big business feeding us emotions. But if this campaign is backed up by social support for the young people, it shines a brief follow spot on an ongoing commitment to the spending of profits on people trying to use sport to broaden their outlook, then good may be done here. It's about... The consistency. Is it here today and gone tomorrow? There's the emotional rub of any human relationship, and the one we judge them all on. As Mark Masters said, a year on from the car crash Pepsi ad, in which smilingly diverse peace protesters with quaintly unpotent retro CND logos are brought together with the cops by Kendall Jenner and a can of fizzy pop. What has Pepsi done to invest in a long-form commitment to helping community justice? Silence. There are Pepsi's authentic values. Whilst it is honestly incomprehensible that the big power agencies still see dividends to shareholders as more important than investing in the communities of their often energy-poor customers, maybe we can yet help them crumble this foundational thinking. What if we pressured the public conversation towards running private energy firms as much closer to not-for-profits, turning healthy business success into more and more schemes for helping people? You know, like a nationalised bit of infrastructure should. What if the climate of success felt much more like this for those operating the firms with big reach? The debate has resurged in the private sector-loving UK recently, with opposition geography teacher Jeremy Corbyn saying simply, privatise the water industry, and many voices calling for the renationalisation of the railways. So rubbish has been the ticket prices to trains ever turning up ratio of many dividend fountaining operators. Well, of course, interestingly, the rail network in Britain is already half nationalised. Shh. With the running of the tracks, signals and major stations having been managed by the government effectively through network rail since the early noughties. It just sounds less scary to some of Middle England when you don't mention the word socialism. And why should you need to? Sustainable business is surely about finding what works best for a given sector. 
And it's not always slathering dividend junkies. Taxpayers can sometimes be the smartest investors. And what if doing this did, yes, involve a conscious running down of a big business? Ah, well, that suicidal declaration of do-goodery would kill the confidence in it held by its market and the value of the company would collapse too quickly to do any good, right? But what if we simply saw this as fairly basic, strong leadership? The vital principle of delegating and nurturing and planning and load-spreading yourself out of a job. You'd have surely done your job as an energy executive human being, looking to the future of your planet and your people. No? It's something for every person responsible for employees' and customers' well-being to ponder. And I can think of examples of business owners who've simply done it, closed down one dream to follow a new one. But this has impact on us out of work as well, of course. We have to be seen to be understanding sustainable lifestyles, as Goal 12.8 puts it, and begin to consider the idea of sustainable tourism. While that particular notion has been around a while, the implications of it beyond the idea of being nice to people while you're on holiday, which the World Tourism Organization slightly embellishes from that, might be that we don't even do tourism like we did. How do we mix the need to look after communities banking on the souvenir-hunting dollar while not banking on millions of CO2-belching air miles spent just to go get blitzed in the bars of Benidorm? Great. Now I can't even escape the workstation and the beige photocopier without guilt. Thanks. Ironic too, because innovation is about to hand your job to a robot, so you're going to be on holiday a lot. Seeing the Hopey Changey Bit The agendas of accelerating sustainable development and eradicating poverty and that of climate change are deeply intertwined. So says a joint report from the Brookings Institution, the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate and the Grantham Institute. Growth strategies that fail to tackle poverty and or climate change will prove to be unsustainable, and vice versa, it says. The world is in the midst of a historic structural transformation, with developing countries becoming the major drivers of global savings, investment and growth, and with it driving the largest wave of urbanisation in world history. At the same time, the next 15 years will also be crucial for arresting the growing carbon footprint of the global economy and its impact on the climate system. A major expansion of investment in modern, clean and efficient infrastructure will be essential to attaining the growth and sustainable development objectives that the world is setting itself. Problem is, the report says, we're currently caught globally in a cycle of low investment and low growth, with insufficient infrastructures rising to the challenge, despite an enormous available pool of global savings. They say that essentially, if we just wake up, there are major opportunities that can be exploited. Why? Why don't we? When it does seem to some eager billionaires like Musk and Diamandis and Gates and others we've never heard of, that the future could be a brilliant entrepreneurial opportunity. You could say it's because those guys recognise to one degree or another that the real opportunity of the more abundant future, if we're to pursue it realistically, is one that includes... Uh, everyone. The current world machine mostly looks after a few, and they're not likely to be keen to dismantle it all, you might think. 
I think a simpler, less conspiratorial angle to view it all from here for the moment is simply reticence. Folk don't like change. All at once, technological changes seem to threaten our lives and give them some hope. We can't wait to play with robots, for example, but aren't sure whether they will one day rule us. As Shivdeep Dhaliwal says in The Next Web, AI is actually a long way from capable of making human sense of an economy. The kind of jobs lost to a new generation of bots will be jobs too boring or dangerous for us to sensibly keep doing if we don't have to. Instead, he says, the change should be seen as an opportunity to upskill human workers so that they can be more productive or better utilised. Ultimately, humans are the driving force of the economy. We consume and we create. Robots do not. At least not presently or in the near future. Rodney Brooks for MIT Technology Review sums up the seven deadly sins of AI prediction in a super article it's worth reading on the blog. Essentially, telling us to stay cool, daddy-o. Hollywood, picturing magic, not science, ambiguous use of terms, fear of the exponential. Such things creep into our minds with fanciful worries about everything. Brooks says in the end just this. Almost all innovations in robotics and AI take far, far longer to be really widely deployed than people in the field and outside the field imagine. They're not coming for our jobs. They may well in the midterm be a part of how we all get better jobs. AI is a huge part of the unfolding revolution for sure, and it will help unlock all kinds of global infrastructures and industries. But you can take a breath or two before putting your desk lamp in your cardboard box. If you want to take a more exciting flick-through and Usborne Book of the Future type vision of tomorrow's jobs, you really should click to Fastco Designs, reporting of Salt and Pepper Creative's illustrations of the jobs of tomorrow for the World Economic Forum. They're delightful. Imagine yourself as a blockchain banking engineer on a jet ski, or a national identity conservationist, digitally capturing heritage for AR posterity or a superstructure printer, drawing finished buildings, or a technology ethicist, deciding from the moral high ground what technology to commission and license. Yes, this is the kind of spacey old utopianism I can get on board with. Though, in truth, it's thought through stuff for the World Economic Forum, just done with a little theatre. It's the renewable energy sector that I suspect is going to most immediately do much to visibly transform not just our workings and playings and comings and goings, but our whole way of seeing the world. The thing I am arguing through Unsee the Future that we need above and in everything. A vital new perspective on ourselves and on our place in the natural world. And the reason I think it will work is because it combines a few significant new factors in the human world machine. It's the affordable development of battery technology that is putting practical oomph under all the capriciously harvested natural energy options, helping us piece together solutions that will ultimately work at all scales. It's poised to begin transforming the high street with growing electric vehicle sales, and it's just beginning to square up to the meaty challenge of industry's power needs but it relies on a more fundamentally site-specific approach than imposed power. What is the best way to harness natural resources for clean energy here? Not having to fully depend on constantly piping hazardous stuff thousands of miles to reach here. And it works because of innovations in digital tech, much better measurability of things, a speedier analysis of what is using what in a plant or in a home. 
The good news for twerpy you and me is potentially a fewfold. As we saw in episode 9, the psychology of this is that you are going to become far more aware of the energy impact of your living. Knowing what pushes your meter up might help you stop using it so much. That effect alone can reduce your bills. What will reduce your bills further is being able to generate your own energy. Imagine if governments decided not to give you personally all that setup cost, but Greensianly set about installing PV and batteries in all homes. Your cost of living would drop significantly. Then you would also have a degree of independence from the big power companies. Financially and practically, you wouldn't need them as much day to day. That sounds rather nice to me. But you'd be thinking more about your place in the national mix too. Interestingly, those meters will be telling you what you are giving back. If you are living in a rural country, struggling to catch up to industrial standards, this would be a lifeline, an empowerment in every sense. And the innovations just in energy tech could make our centralised power generation look arcane to our young children. And just for a dizzying snapshot, take a look at Alternative Energy News' Future News homepage. Spherical sun power amplifiers, electricity generating car tyres, whole forests of 3D printed solar and kinetic power leaves, waste heat conversion, thermochemical solar. It's all looking imminently futury and fun. And that's before we get to Gravitricity's ambitions to test a very simply effective large-scale gravity generator. Sadly, not a graviton generator, we can't fly without wings of some kind just yet. Aside from all the fun-looking generation coming our way to piece together a viable web of human power needs, one of the rather more ominous industrial innovations we may simply have to embrace to tackle the climate crisis will be carbon capture, says Akshat Rathi for Quartz. As much as many green folk dislike the idea, seeing cloud-eating machines as a further symptom of bad scientific attitude fig-leafing unsustainable fossily practices, Rathi says that having looked at the ideas around it for many years, he is convinced we're going to need to carefully attempt to deploy some of the recent, more successful attempts to develop the technology. I've come to a conclusion, he says carbon capture is both vital and viable. Its mass deployment remains a challenge, but not for the reasons that many environmentalists commonly cite. Clearing up those misunderstandings could offer hope in a world full of doom and gloom climate stories. As ever, it may well be how it is used rather than the weather. How it is deployed in the intelligent mix of attempting to save our current working dynamic with the environment. The context we manage its use in. Success takes focus. Challenges demand it, but a sustainable way to look at it is surely to encourage a better sense of context. You may or may not have an instinctively entrepreneurial personality, but everyone needs certain human balances to be at their best in any endeavour, just as anyone can have a crack at a business idea. I suspect the trick is to more consciously embrace the idea of seasons. Is it a season to sow or to reap, to invest or to sit tight, to work or to play, to relax or to make sacrifices? Dumb fate will cruelly dictate most of this, of course, and getting your mindful self around this most fundamental interaction with our life's experiences is pretty blooming fundamental indeed. You can't control the wind. You can't even see it. But it can blow over houses. And it can turn turbines to put the lights on in houses. 
depends how you see it and how up to seeing it you can admit you are. There is a time to bet it all on black. There is a time to really listen to your loved ones who will benefit or suffer the most from your gambling addictions. And for your household, we can read our world community. Personal success is to be measured against one's own goals. What were you most hoping to do, or at least attempting to do? Success is not measured against other people's perceived success. Never. That way madness lies. And gambling addictions. Encouraging more honest measures of personal success could de-stress the planet's workforce of industry leaders. Tackling all this may seem a very long way from the planetary reality of hearing the oil refineries in remote bits of the Amazon jungle fall silent, for example. But it's interesting to consider the possibility of a world where giant industry no longer feels the need to buy up beautiful bits of natural infrastructure and historic human land to plunder them for burn-it-once energy. And those big industrial companies have roots in all the major industrialised countries of the world, the ones where cultural pressure to encourage more sustainable living is often building the most. In an Instagram GoPro world, it's getting harder to work hidden. Everything is connected and potentially published. The way to seize the business opportunity of a crisis is to recognise the more richly humanly valuable and plug all humans into pursuing it. Where defeating the climate crisis is concerned, the truth is, no one is going to hand success to us. It's never worked that way. The real innovations of the 21st century may be ordinary people helping each other to escape the failures of all our old ideas of success. Next time on Unsee the Future, the oceans. Discover more links and video and reading on the blog of this post at momotempo.co.uk forward slash lingo. And be the first to get the future in your inbox. Subscribe to the Momo Memos at forward slash amigo. Listen, read, ponder and share. Do. Unsee the Future is a Momo Tempo production. Obviously.